This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium RPGs. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. Today's episode is the first in a mini-series on world-building, a huge topic that's impossible to completely cover in a single episode. So, I'm bringing in a variety of voices and perspectives to deepen our understanding of world-building one piece at a time. Today, I'm talking to Ian, the creator of Incendium RPGs, my frequent co-host for the Lenses of Dragon Mind, and one of the members of our playtest panel discussions. We dive into suspension of disbelief, finding the balance between hard and soft world-building, and how TTRPGs as a medium allow players to interview a world's creator directly. If listening to this episode sparks any insights or questions, be sure to head over to the Darkmore Podcast Community Discord to submit them in the proper channels. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Dragon Mind. Today, we're actually going to do our first in a series of episodes on world building. Because world building is such a big topic and every GM I talk to has their own unique thing to add with it. And really, rather than having one unified theory of world building, kind of like Jesse Shell's art of game design, I think when we talk about world building, even specifically in TTRPGs, it's good to look at it from as many different angles as you can in order to take the few gems that are going to transform your game and also build your skill set one piece at a time. So today, to start off this little mini-series, uh, I have Ian, my usual co-host for Dragon Mind. Ian, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, you know, I've been uh, trying to come back to my uh, my reference document for Corsara and just like reviewing the things that I've come up with lately. Uh, in terms of world building, uh, for example, you know, I'm trying to reiterate on my on my elves and come up with, a you know, a different thing to call them besides like high elf and wood elf and stuff like that. And uh, that's been leading me down some interesting paths. So, uh, yeah, in general, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. So actually, I think that would be a, a great place to start, especially in our regular lenses. You've mentioned Corsara a few times, which is why I wanted to reach out to you first, because I know that you've been very entrenched in the world building process personally. So to start off, I'm curious, what does the term world building mean to you? So world building for me is designing the game setting for my players and myself to enjoy. Uh, using a mix of techniques that will help us create a satisfying world to experience when playing our TTRPG of choice. Um, there's a lot of things that I haven't really learned yet about world building, constantly working on how to improve my approach to it. Um, but in general, it's just it's just what's necessary really uh, to create like immersion and draw people into your into your world, into your game, 
so that they can have that uh, that interesting uh, and exciting experience. I do think that it's um, probably one of the it's probably the first step actually in actually playing the game uh, because you know everything uh, like even at your first session or even session zero it starts with what do we know about this world? What do we know about what get, game we're getting into? Um, what characters can I play? What is there any relevant history I should know about the uh, species selections and, and heritages and cultures uh, on top of like, where are we playing? You know, I, I could I could go on and on, but basically answering the the, you know, who, what, when, where, why and how uh, questions is is all world building uh, to me. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point that part of understanding your options at character creation are going to help shape the world that you're going to be playing in. If we look at 5th edition D&D as an example, I know something that can be exciting for some players, frustrating for some game masters, is how many different options are available. So especially once you start adding in the Magic the Gathering crossover settings. So, you know, you've got weird options like Simic Hybrid or Leonin or Loxodin, which aren't really part of D&D canon. A lot of times, you know, I I've heard game masters express frustration as they're trying to do a specific tone for whatever world they want to build. And suddenly a player just shows up with a weird thing out of nowhere you know, not every setting is going to support a, a plasmoid or an autonome. So even just getting in the habit of maybe curating a list of different player species or classes and subclasses will help set the tone for your world building. Now, just as a follow up question, uh, you mentioned immersion. So to you, what does what does immersion mean for TTRPGs and what might it look like? So I feel like immersion varies from player to player. There are some people that have a really easy time of using their theater of the mind and imagining what's going on in the game state, whereas other people are looking at it more from a, a strictly informational point of view and don't really see it as like a, a movie or a narrative in their head. Um, but just, you know, this is this is what happens after I took an action or something like that. And what this all really revolves around is the suspension of disbelief, uh, because a player needs to be able to just like in any video game or reading a book or a movie, you know, you need to be able to suspend your disbelief in the events of the game uh, in order to feel well, like you're experiencing it, at least. Uh, from my understanding. So like when I'm playing my character Mu in Gears, uh, I try really hard to suspend my disbelief about the fact that he's a walking, talking robot tree guy. So it's important for me to uh, to suspend my disbelief in order to feel uh, like I am a part of the story. Uh, so you brought up suspension of disbelief. And that is a term I remember from uh, like film classes in college. It was the metric of whether or not a movie was successful. And the professor would say this is an example of a movie where for whatever reason, suspension of disbelief was broken. It's easy to disbelieve what's going on. So can you give us an example whether it's in a book or a movie or whatever artistic medium 
of how suspension of disbelief can be broken. All right. So the one that comes to mind the most for me uh, is actually uh, The Last Airbender by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, I've talked about this recently in a video on originality uh, on the YouTube channel, which you can check out at Incendium RPGs uh, on YouTube. And basically, I at the time I was talking about how the reason that it's not original is because of the way that M. Night Shyamalan twisted the um, the world to try and create something unique that he thought people would like and people didn't because uh, it just did not fit well enough with people's preconceived notions of the world. So when you're talking about world building, if you've established certain lore, especially if you're working off of pre-existing lore from like an animated series such as Avatar The Last Airbender, then people are going to be expecting something to maybe be different, but still fit within the realm of possibility. For example, in Avatar The Last Airbender, the show, uh, you get bloodbending as an extension of waterbending. And that doesn't break immersion, that doesn't break suspension of disbelief, because it feels natural. It feels like an organic, logical leap uh, to the next step. But in The Last Airbender, the movie, they changed... A little bit of the rules for bending well not just a little bit but a lot of it and for example in the show you're supposed to be able to bend the elements with subtle motions that have a large impact and m night Shyamalan decided to reverse that and say you have to have a lot of effort to have a little bit of impact and i mean you know sure i guess in terms of physics you need a lot of energy uh to create a little bit of mass Sure. But that's not how this world works. It's about spirituality. It's about, uh, you know, Chinese and Asian uh, philosophy in terms of chi and energy and, and manipulation of the elements. Uh, and it's not supposed to be realistic. So when an earthbender breaks a rock with their head just by do it just by using their forehead, uh, you know, that is believable. What's not believable is having seven or eight different guys doing a, doing a dance and singing I'm a little teapot to move a little boulder for this other guy to punch it uh, and, and hit some, some firebender. And what's also not believable is, well, it's believable in a sense, but what's stupid is <laughs> uh, Avatar uh, Last Airbender, you know, firebenders are really strong because they have the ability to create their element from themselves, whereas everybody else has to bend an element that is existing around them. But in the movie, they can't do that. They have to use, they have to bring in these braziers of fire to bend fire and oppress other people with. And it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it, ta it takes away so much from, from the, the world building, it really does. And, and, you know, I could go on and on about this, but basically when you break suspension of disbelief, it usually has to do with uh, preconceived notions not lining up with the thing that you're witnessing. Yeah, a lot of times with suspension of disbelief, the disbelief would be the disbelief would begin with some kind of fantastical element. So people can't really manipulate water doing martial arts. And so usually what fiction has to do is, and this is part of world building, create fantastical rules 
that are still grounded in some kind of logic. So assuming that a person's internal energy could allow them to psychically control a specific element using a certain style of movement. That would be how we could suspend our disbelief because even though this is a fantastical, magical thing, there is still an underlying logic to it. And it's really interesting because I agree that part of like the specific scene you're mentioning in The Last Airbender, part of what makes it difficult to believe is you've got these like eight earthbenders doing a really intricate kata and the firebenders are just standing there waiting for a rock to get punched at them. So it breaks the suspension of disbelief. It's easy to disbelieve that situation because we can think if if we're the firebender guard, we're not just going to stand there and wait for this intricate dance for the rock to get thrown at us. Versus, you know, in the animated series where they have a little bit more freedom because they can draw everything, bending is a lot faster, which now makes it much more applicable in a martial setting. Now, one of the things I will kind of contest you on is the idea that firebenders actually need a physical flame to bend. I found kind of interesting. I thought that was an interesting little twist when I first saw it in theaters, just because every other element needs a thing. So it's kind of interesting that firebenders in the live action version would need something to bring. Although I will admit that the way they pulled it off was terrible. (laughs) But the idea was kind of, I I thought, you know, if I'm thinking about the rules of the other elements, you know, why wouldn't firebenders need their element accessible in order to bend it? And I do think part of it just has to, you know, be with how firebenders firebend in the series it's it's not even just that it it, like they throw a punch and fire comes out we actually get to learn uh from uncle iroh why firebenders are able to to push fire from their fists or from their breath and stuff and that it all stems from the energy within them being converted into an element of heat and if you think about it you know everybody you know people are warm-blooded right People are, people are warm-blooded. They ha- they create heat in order to sustain themselves, and that is the expression of your energy, right? And there's the, even theories out there that, you know, when, when in Chinese culture or whatever culture in Asia, uh, this uh, type of energy, this qi, this qi, you know, uh, it's the flow of blood to provide heat to an extremity, and that is what people were, you know, describing, basically. And I think that it's it makes sense that firebenders wouldn't need an element. They can bend fire. Like if fire is outside of them and already exists, they can bend it. They can dim candles. They can, uh, you know, increase a bonfire with their, you know, anger or whatever. But what makes the firebenders so compelling as a main antagonist in the, in the first series is the fact that they, they just can do it. Like if you bring an earthbender out onto the ocean, there's no earth over there. They can't do anything. There's no connection to the earth. Bring a waterbender into the middle of the desert. They can't do anything. There's no water. Airbenders, they're the only ones that can really rival the firebenders, but they're all peaceful nomads and they don't want to fight. So that's why it was so easy to wipe them out in the first place, right? They were really the only threat, the only only long-term threat, I should say, uh, to the Fire Nation uh, at the time. And they just got ambushed and totally wiped out. Well, and if we're looking at suspension of disbelief in the micro and the macro, in the micro, 
I'll stand by my. I thought the idea of needing fire was kind of original. Um, and that the reason Sozin's comet was a threat is the idea that they could now bend, like they could create their own fire, kind of like how Katara needs the moon in order to blood bend. Um, it's not something she can just do. She needs like a power up to access her mega form. But in the macro, it does make sense that the Fire Nation in the first animated series would be so successful militarily because they uniquely have the ability to create their own element. And just, you know, there's a reason that shock and awe tactics have worked throughout human history and why they would gain so much momentum in trying to conquer the world. Now I'm going off on a tangent, but on the subject of the air nomads being peaceful, have you heard the theory that in the third episode when Aang opens up the the chamber to find Monk Gyatso as a skeleton, that the reason that there are Fire Nation guards all around him is because he sealed the chamber and then air bended to suffocate all of them. So it's like, yeah, airbenders are are peaceful, but they they have the ability to not be. Yeah, and you know, that's a really interesting example of of soft world building. Something that I want to talk about later in this uh, in this session um, is is this idea of like things that aren't outright explained, right? And the audience or whoever is experiencing it, witnessing it, uh, gets to draw their own conclusions about what happened in the series. And I can believe that, um, you know, that that's believable. That's good world building, right? Like, it's believable that airbenders would be so peaceful when they are the ones that hold the most power in the world. Uh, I mean, sure, firebenders can create fire out of, quote unquote, thin air, but they need air to do it. They need oxygen to do it, you know, if you bring it in a, uh, a physical aspect to this. And, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, there are diagrams online of, of the elements and their relationship to each other. But really, air should be like the middle and the other elements need to be around it because without air, nobody can do anything uh, because you need air to breathe. So even if you don't need air to create fire or whatever, you need air to be alive to create fire, you know, and stuff like that. You know, Uncle Iroh talks about, you know, transforming the breath into chi into energy which creates the fire and that being uh tense and restrictive restricts the breath and that's why you know uh zuko often has trouble uh firebending because he's so angry all the time he's so tense he doesn't let his energy flow and he has to learn how to do that over the course of the series but bringing it back to the movie we don't have those problems like a simple thing of changing how a bender needs to use their art creates a cascade of infinite issues that we can we can talk about with the with the movie and the universe that it takes place in you know never mind the acting or you know the the script writing the narration from Katara because for some reason Shyamalan wanted to create a movie that had the whole first book in it cuts out like half of the characters in it uh it, you know never mind all of that if you change a fundamental pillar of the universe uh, in which you're telling the story, then that universe is going to, well, it's going to have drastic changes, if not collapse as a whole. To bring it back more, a little bit broad, which I think that the, the way we went was broad and then we dug specific and to start specific and then bring it more broad. Part of world building is 
finding techniques to help your players suspend their disbelief by establishing the rules of the world, which they can now use to interact with. So, for example, if we were playing, which there is now, an Avatar TTRPG, the rules to that world, including not only the fighting system of the elements, but the cultural dynamics, the political dynamics, what personalities would reasonably be part of that world's history. Um, it's going to be very different than something like The Witcher, which is also going to be very different than something like Final Fantasy. So it's establishing kind of the the rules of the world, which then helps your players have a feeling of immersion, um, which then will encourage them ideally to come back and add to the world. So I know we've touched on it a little bit already, but I think it's good to still ask the question, in your opinion, Ian, why does world building matter? So, yeah, we already talked about like one of the reasons, which is that world building is necessary for immersion um, and allows them, of course, to focus on that story that their characters are going through. So that's that's really important. But um, the other part is that when players have questions, as they usually do about the world that they're going through, uh, the world building that you've done up to this point will support your ability to be able to answer those questions. Even if you don't have an immediate answer, uh, you can usually come up with something later that will naturally fit into the setting. And I think that is really important because I am the kind of guy that allows my players to come up with things uh, in the world that would uh, constitute as world building. Uh, I don't always do it. I'll usually ask the player, hey, you know, what would your character know about this situation? What would they know about this plant or rock or the culture that they're coming from or entering? Things like that. And I think that's a really good way to approach it because then uh, you don't have to come up with the answers. They can come up with it. And it helps them feel like they really are part of the world. You know, they came up with this idea. My character would know that this plant is really use for, useful for medicine. So that's what I'm going to use it for in this situation, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've experienced many times firsthand where uh, a GM has this very intricate world or uh, an idea that they've fallen in love with, and they want their players to feel the same level of excitement that they do about it. But because it's a let me tell you about my amazing thing and the players really have to just play within those rules. And most of the time, at least in my experience, the way that it works out is the player then goes to try to do something with their understanding of the rules. And the GM is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not how it works in my world. A lot of times it can be frustrating because it feels like you have a lack of choices because you don't have all of the information available or when you try to think of an out-of-the-box solution, it doesn't fit with what the DM wants, at which case the, the question is, why are we playing this game where I'm supposed to have all these choices if I only have some locked-in choices that aren't very interesting? Um, whereas your approach, which uh, I credit uh, Joe from Advantage for kind of bringing to our uh, our attention, is the idea of allowing your players to help build the world for you. And even if it's something like the questions that they ask, if you approach your world building like this, there's a higher likelihood of the players feeling a level of ownership over it. 
And it's not impossible to get in other ways. I mean, just look at any fandom, right? So Avatar, to use that as an example, has a very passionate fandom. And part of the reason that the show has endured uh, so long, I mean, I think it's like over 20 years old or something, is because the fans feel like they have a piece of ownership over it or it means so much to them. So, yeah, it's definitely a very powerful thing is if you can get your players on board with feeling like they have partial or significant ownership over the story that you're telling together. Um, I mean, that's really, I think, what Wizards of the Coast means when they say that D&D is about collaborative storytelling. And that is a really good point. You know, Watsi says that it's about collaborative storytelling. And that's part of the reason I think that their world building is is a little lax in terms of uh, its rules because they don't want to inhibit the freedom that the player has at the table. They want to create enough, like the player's handbook, all the things in the player's handbook are designed to be able to kind of fit into your world however you decide to approach it. So a barbarian who is a totem barbarian, that is like, that's fairly, you know, simple. There's not too much in-world lore that is required to make the logical leap of a barbarian's rage manifesting as uh, as the bear totem or the wolf totem, which everybody only ever plays the bear totem. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm still waiting for somebody to pick the eagle. Uh, <laughs> but but the problem is that because they're trying to make things generic enough to fit in into anybody's world, that they've also kind of thrown everything in the kitchen sink uh, as well uh, into their world of Faerun and the Forgotten Realms. That's why they have so many pantheons, gods, you know, because they don't want the players to feel inhibited. But then that puts, uh, you know, pressure on the DM or the GM to make sure that those things have a reasonable explanation in terms of world building for their custom setting. Um, there was something you mentioned earlier regarding the reference document um, and the setting Bible stuff. I was just reminded that um, I actually take a slightly, well, I don't know if it's different than you, but when I was writing my reference document, um, I wrote the whole thing. And then I was like, this is too much stuff. Uh, like my players are going to be confused or they're going to be spoiled on like things that I could talk about and introduce to them later on. So what I did was I created a player setting guide as well. And I have like a master reference document, which I barely update, honestly, in comparison to the player setting guide. Um, and the that was what that was for me as the GM. And then the player setting guide was, of course, for the players. And it makes it easier I feel for players to get immersed and understand the world building choices that I make when they have less to, to learn right off the bat. Um, <clears throat> it's still a reference document and I don't expect my players to go through the whole thing in order to feel prepared to play in my world. But the things that are relevant, uh, the things that the questions that they do have, you know, I can always point to that player setting guide and say, this is what you know so far. Uh, this is the general knowledge of the world. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's one that I think we've made kind of obliquely already, but it's good to establish it as like a, a solid thing to say, which is part of world building is doing it in a way that's digestible to your audience. And of course, your audience can change. So I know that 
I've spoken to many people and I've seen comments on various social media, there's a real appetite for specific world building. I remember Michael from our panel discussions, um, I think it was the Cleric and Revised Species episode, where he said that it was a shame that the drow like lore was in a large part just being removed from the game. Part of it is, you know, Wizards is trying to clean up their their image from like a social responsibility standpoint, which I understand. And I, I, I'm not sure there's not value in exploring specific storylines, um, especially if there is uh, some heavy content that is tricky to deal with. And just using the the game as a way to, you know, explore some of that content. So I do think that there are a lot of people that really want that specific lore that as an audience, they appreciate the intricate details and, and that there's always more to learn. And it does make it harder to implement for your own setting. Like you were saying, you know, Wizards is definitely leaning towards setting agnostic content to be able to be used f so that individual tables can be free to use the content and however they see fit. The The one thing I will say on the, on the reference document part is, I know I mentioned mine is like 90 pages or something. It didn't start out that long. I think it started around 60 or 70, but because it's a Google Doc, it's also a living doc. So as players learned more about the world, I would update the reference doc to reflect that. And in my original doc, there was an entry for every like species that was available, including every um, supplement that had been put out and lore accompanying it and how it fit into the specific setting that I wanted to run. Um, but I think if you make it easily navigatable, you can put in a lot more information as long as you don't expect your players to absorb all of it all at once and you know um a really good example is i know for a lot of games i run with my reference doc i'll say uh the session we're gonna run this weekend is taking place in this city you know if you want your character to know things about that city consult the reference doc and ask me questions ahead of time so that way i can let the players explain in character what they know about the city to other players who want to role play a character that's like say ignorant because sometimes it's fun to come in where your character is learning details at the same time you are as a player and other times it's fun to be like oh i've been to this city before let me be your tour guide and tell you all the things that i know it's it's both the knowledge and ignorance dynamics uh, can create really three-dimensional situations that I think are deeper than, you know, the player character having a plus four intelligence and then saying, can I roll a history check? And then the game master narrating what that character knows and then the player turning and being like, yes, that is what my character tells you. You know, that kind of, that doesn't help with the immersion that you had mentioned earlier. One thing you said there is, that's really important is prompting your players to take a look at this kind of stuff, not giving them homework per se, like not like say, write an essay on what your character knows about uh, Antoir in the, the the nation of Rykel, which is a place in Corsara's uh, setting. But hey, you know, I have some brief descriptions about what this place is like and what your character would probably know. 
uh, about where we're going to be having our session this weekend. So you should totally go and check it out in the player setting guide if you want to like help yourself get re-immersed into the game, especially if it's been a little while uh, since you actually played uh, your last session. So uh, that can kind of help refresh people's memories and also get them into the right mindset of, of the world that you're, you're you know, presenting to them uh, and building together. I think one thing that you just said that is a really good takeaway for game masters is you don't want it to be homework. If you think of the term homework, it is a have to, not a get to. And where I've had the most success when it comes to deep TTRPG gameplay is letting the experience be permission-based where the players get to immerse and engage on the level that they want. So, you know, to bring up my latest game, at the moment I have 10 players and not all of them wanted to engage deeply. So you, Ian, you know, you mentioned Moo earlier, wanted a deep dive into the character's psychology, into their build, into their backstory. Stephanie from Borrowing Brilliance ended up there too. Um, and I can name a handful of players who, even in between sessions, wouldn't stop really playing the game. They would flesh out what their character is doing in between sessions, which contacts they'd be developing or calling on in order to get more information about the world or the situation. And I'd have other players that would just kind of show up with the character that they had. My sister is a really good example of that, where for the first like 20 sessions or so, she would just show up with her barbarian and uh, she'd be like, all right, what's the mission? And your character and Stephanie's character would have these deep personal moments and, and written out stories they would be able to summarize and be kind of the tour guide. And then they'd say, all right, the monster's that way. And then my sister would be like, all right, time to roll the dice. And over time, my sister would see how much fun you guys were having going deep. So rather than me being like, hey, Stephanie, who's also my sister's name, there are two Stephanies in our group. So there's Stephanie I do barring brilliance with, and there's my sister, Stephanie. My sister, Stephanie, would see how much fun fun you guys were having and rather than me saying hey you need to do your homework or why aren't you reading my reference doc I would let her engage on the level she wanted and she was compelled to now do the deep dive story thing to the point that you know we just did our little in-between to set up the next arc of our of our campaign and she is the one that wrote the most leading up to it she wrote like a 24 page short story about what her character is doing in the in-between times because it was a get to not a have to and because she made the decision to engage with it now she's also getting more out of it so and, and I, i've seen too many times where game masters want the cathartic deep storytelling so they try to find ways to make their players do homework or dive deeply and unfortunately more times than not, it has the adverse reaction. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only leader we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. 
Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in arc three of Advantage, a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app. So we've talked about suspension of disbelief, immersion, having your world building be digestible. So Ian, in your opinion, what are some examples that you can think of of quality world building? I think that quality world building, it's it's kind of necessary to define what kind of world building you're looking at uh, before you can say this is successful world building, yada, yada. Because like I said, you know, people immerse themselves in a variety of ways. They suspend their disbelief in a variety of ways. Uh, you can't have a one size fits all when it comes to world building. So uh, there are a couple of different ways that I've learned over the, the the course of, you know, just being a GM and doing a lot of research and stuff. Um, there's a YouTube channel called Hello Future Me that talks a lot about what I'm what I'm going to talk about now, and they do a much better job. So I'm going to try and keep this relatively brief and, and not steal their thunder. But basically, they talk about two different kinds of world building, hard world building and soft world building. Hard world building is done by having detailed lore about the world's history and current affairs, usually gained through exposition, uh, perhaps through NPCs, books, or in-world media. Uh, hard world building utilizes hard and fast rules and explanations for basically everything. And the typical example of this is usually Lord of the Rings. Tolkien did a lot of work in, you know, creating his own language, creating a creation myth of the world and, you know, having the Maiar, which are these, you know, powerful beings that are like angelic in nature, um, but with like Nordic twists and things like that. Um, and the Silmarils, these fantastical gems created by uh, these uh, elf-like deities almost um, of the early uh, time in Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. Um, and, you know, anybody who knows anything about the lore of Tolkien will know that I'm very, very, very much not going into detail there and that there's a lot of nuance missing from my explanation. But that's actually just because I'd rather not focus on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings because not that it's been done to death. It's just that there are other examples you can look at, too. Um, so a good example of hard world building that I'd like to showcase is actually the uh, Skullduggery Pleasant series by Derek Landy. Landy is an Irish author. Um, who has a lot of experience in terms of like creating interesting lore and, uh, you know, drawing on uh, old Irish folklore and magical lore and stuff like that and creating a world that is more grounded in reality. Like there are guns and guns work really well against people with magic and magic uh, is also really powerful. And there's like two separate societies of like magicians and um and uh, the, you know, regular people, mundane people, uh, who they call mortals, because basically the magicians are all immortal uh, for most of the time. And, you know, that world is completely secret, um, which allows Derek Landy to create these fantastic adventures that don't have to really answer to real world, like police or anything like that. Um, and he also uh, makes the world building 
uh, rules that he introduces in each book, part of the uh, story uh, that the main characters are investigating, the main characters being Valkyrie Kane and Skullduggery Pleasant, the skeleton detective. And basically, whenever a new mystery comes up that becomes the topic of a book, there are new things that they have to investigate and learn through detective work. Um, and the magic is just kind of on the side. And there are hard and fast rules to how the magic works, too. It's not unlimited in scope until at least later on in the series. Um, you know, fire is usually the easiest magic for everybody to do, but you have to understand how to create a fireball in your hand to throw. Uh, you have to understand how to push the air in order to affect something across the room. Uh, you have like there's earth magic and water magic, too. And both of those are like really complicated and diffuse forms of magic. So most people just rely on fire and air. And then he, you know, breaks his own rules and explores the, uh, you know, reasons behind those rules being able to be broken and what the impact is on the uh, society or uh, the mission is and how the main characters have to overcome those obstacles. They are forced to be creative within the limitations of their own power in order to win the day. Uh, and that's and basically, I think that's a really good example of hard world building because everything is, you know, it's discussion based, it's exposition based, and the magic system has clear cut rules for the most part. So you did also mention soft world building. How is soft world building different than hard world building? So soft world building is a much more show don't tell approach. Um, you tend to let the players or the audience or whoever draw their own conclusions uh, based on what they see and direct answers uh, are few and far between in the world. It tends to draw the player's imaginations into this state of like, you know, wonder, invoking something personal within their psyche uh, or some, you know, old story that they've heard a long time ago when they were a kid uh, is now coming to light in a way that they could have never imagined. The example of soft world building is Spirited Away uh, from Studio Ghibli. Um, Studio Ghibli tends to work with a lot of like fantastical elements and stories that are more about the people living in a fantastical world without actually explaining much about how the world works. Uh, for example, Spirited Away, like I said, it builds off of Japanese folklore in a way that it kind of connects to our unconscious sense of wonder. The spirits of the movie are strange and fantastical with no clear in-universe explanation about why they are the way they are. Uh, there's like this turnip spirit who's like a giant turnip and it's like, okay, great. Uh, there are, you know, little baby chicks, uh, like, uh, you know, baby chickens, right? And they're just big and they're spirits for some reason. But there's also other ones that are like dragons where we have a little bit more of a, an understanding about them, how a dragon moves, uh, how the dragon moves through the air and what kind of features they might have on them because uh, they might have like elk horns or scales like a snake. Um, and, you know, this kind of soft world building frames the experience that we have throughout the movie because when we're following the main character, Chihiro, we're basically seeing everything through her eyes, through the eyes of somebody who's never seen anything like this before and is just trying to, you know, continue surviving in this world. So when she becomes trapped in the spirit world, um, she becomes a an employee of the spirit bathhouse, 
uh, as Haku, one of the uh, supporting cast members, uh, basically a, another main character, in my opinion, um, takes her to see Yubaba, the, the owner of the bathhouse. And Yubaba is a witch, and she has no interest in mortals. Uh, no spirit has any interest in mortals, by the way, except for Haku, apparently. Um, and uh, she is, you know, just about ready to just, like, throw this kid into, like, a fire and, and you know, eat her. Um, but Haku tells Shihiro in advance of this meeting that as long as she asks for a job, Yubaba will have to hire her. And there's no way around it. Apparently, Yubaba has taken this oath or something that forces her to give a job to anyone who asks. Uh, and we are really not given any information other than that. So it's up to us to kind of come to a conclusion about why would a witch take any sort of oath in general? Like we see the kind of power she has. She is very powerful. Um, and there, it's just like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Or rather, it wouldn't make sense if we were given direct explanations. But we're not. So we're allowed to draw these conclusions for ourselves. And uh, that leap of logic continues to suspend our disbelief upon the waters of broken immersion. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that the rest of the movie just works. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's magical. And it's a personal experience for almost everybody who's viewed the movie. How I recommend uh, checking it out. Yeah, what I what I like that you brought up is the relationship of hard world building and soft world building to suspension of disbelief. And I will go on the record of saying that I think it's a disservice to look at these two as a one or the other. I think that there's definitely examples of how they work together. And so much so that if you go too extreme in, in only one direction, then it actually will make it harder to suspend disbelief. Hard world building, from the explanation you gave and what I agree with, hard world building offers direct explanations a lot more often, whereas soft world building has more open-ended questions. And so... I can see where, you know, let's take the last airbender as an example. You have all these rules of hard world building. It makes it actually a little more brittle in terms of the leap of logic. So now if there's any instance of the the rules of the system being broken without a direct explanation, now all of a sudden it makes it so it's like that one instance kind of like ruins it. Actually, a good example I can think of is Netflix's live action Cowboy Bebop. I actually I, I'm kind of against the majority. I, I kind of liked it overall. I thought some like Shyamalan's Last Airbender, I thought there were some ideas in it that were kind of interesting to explore. But the opening scene where he walks into the casino and there are like three guys with machine guns right next to his head and he's like i'm gonna make a bet and he like flips the coin in the air and then roundhouse kicks the coin into one of the guys the first thing i'm thinking of why didn't they just pull the trigger and just like fill him full of holes like <laughs> like to me that that completely ruined my suspension of disbelief when it's funny in the original animated series that i know they were basing the scene off of in the the movie in the convenience store it was plausible that Spike could get away with something like that because it was one guy with a handgun to him 
And the guy was acting erratic and his hand was kind of all over the place. So the idea that Spike could remain his composure and block the uh, the gun be- and have it go off, but not actually hit him. And then the guy's other buddies were like caught off guard and were trying to keep up. It it made the scene make sense. And I could suspend my disbelief that this animated cartoon character could have the martial arts skills and training in order to navigate this situation the live action version the situation didn't match the same logistics so in terms of hard world building netflix's cowboy bebop lost me like four minutes in um in the same way if something is too dreamlike and there's not enough explanation another example of soft world building is the 1985 anime film angel's egg which is this very niche not well-known movie with character designs by Yoshitaka Amano, who's famous for doing the character designs for Final Fantasy. And the movie has not enough explanation to the point that the director is like, I don't know what this is about. So it can make it a very frustrating watch for anyone who has all these questions that can't get any answers. So having this balance between elements that are explainable and directly given versus elements that are intriguing and compelling and allow you to come up with your own explanations, finding that balance can really help create an engaging game environment. Uh, An example of a a series that I think does this well is the original Star Wars trilogy. There's enough explanation of who the Jedi were and how lightsabers work and the idea that this is an old religion, but we're not given a lot of direct explanation to how the force works or who all the different cultures are you go to the cantina scene you see all these aliens and it's enough to set the mood but there's not like a direct explanation of well this aliens culture is this and this one and you can find it in supplementary material but that doesn't necessarily increase the enjoyment in the moment of the original trilogy and in fact when star wars gave an explanation of midichlorians that was too much hard world building for some folks including myself of We kind of liked it when the Force was more mysterious and a little bit softer in terms of the world building. Yeah, actually, you know, I actually started Star Wars with the with the second trilogy episodes one, two and three. So for me, uh, as somebody who had never experienced, you know, what that might have been originally, uh, you know, it wasn't that much of a leap for me to make. But I do agree. I think, you know, having the full picture that the force should be left mysterious. It should be this vague kind of esoteric life essence thing that somehow people tap into when they're like, you know, in phase, I guess you could say, with the universe, in step with the universe. Um, And the reason it works is not just because it's this vague power that some people tend to have or that exists, quote unquote, within anybody. It works because everything else is the opposite. Everything else is tech. Everything else is lightsaber, you know, blaster guns, vibroblades, armor that can't be penetrated with anything except a lightsaber. Everything else is tech. And there's just this one thing that kind of speaks to the old, almost unspeakable religion uh, of the Jedi that it's just this thing that we know is there and we don't really know how it works per se, but by experiencing it, we begin to understand how we are a part of it. Because we're a part of it, we are it. You know, it's kind of like Zen. 
uh, in that way. Uh, and, and I'm sure it's very much like Zen, actually, if you go into like the details, because, uh, you know, it's the Jedi Jedi order is is very in the moment, like they don't linger in the past. They don't think about the present. Uh, I mean, the future, I should say, they uh, they only think about the present. But then, you know, that's the surface level. But then you go back and you see a whole bunch of Jedi. Yeah, they think about the past. Yeah, they think about the future. But they don't let it dictate their uh, suffering. It doesn't they don't let it make them suffer. And that's what leads to the dark side. Anyways, uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of how I how I took it, um, you know, for the Star Wars and stuff. So I can totally see why. This is a spectrum where Star Wars has a lot of hard world building. Like this is how the gun works. This is how the ship works. They, the Death Star has this massive cannon because the tech is so advanced. We've gotten to that point. Uh, and the tech is basically indistinguishable from magic. But there still is magic out there. And that's the soft world building of Show Don't Tell. Now, what I think is good to bring up is... I find that hard and soft world building, its impact and its relationship with each other changes based on medium. So for example, uh, I find that soft world building for me personally is easier to immerse in when it's a visual medium. So if you're showing me The Last Airbender and Aang goes into the spirit world and things are kind of weird and don't follow natural laws of physics or anything it's easier for me to absorb and accept it because i'm watching it if you give me like a book like a hard text i want an explanation for what's going on or else i it loses me and it's hard for me to stay immersed in whatever theater of the mind world i'm supposed to be experiencing the other difference between those two mediums and ttrpgs are uh books movies tv shows are what i call static media Meaning that when you watch it, you are seeing the same images and hearing the same audio every time you, you know, engage with it. Your relationship with the material may change in your interpretations and what you get out of it, but it's still the same text. It's still the same words on the page, whereas a TTRPG, you have the ability to question the creator of the world directly. So when you're watching Star Wars, yeah, someone could ask George Lucas, why did you make this decision? Or what is the lore explanation of your world here? And George Lucas isn't sitting with you at the table for four hours where you can interrogate every single detail that he's trying to establish. Whereas with TTRPGs, it's not the same for your GM. Like you said, you don't have to provide an explanation on the spot, but I do find that TTRPGs do start to lend themselves to hard world building because if you try to create something mysterious, your players can ask, why does it work like that? And there's just more opportunity to have that direct investigation into the underlying rules of the world. Now, I'm not saying that has to be every game. I think it's definitely... There have been times I've personally pulled off soft world building. Say the party goes to the Feywild. Everyone accepts that the plane of fairy operates differently <laughs> than the material plane. So you can start pulling off some weird stuff. And actually, I, a lot of times I make sure you're in those sessions, Ian, because I lean on you to come up with these really weird ideas to demonstrate that soft world building. A good example I'm going to take a tangent on for a moment is we had uh, a fairy garden party thrown by Titania and 
basically the the party was sent to do some like socializing and networking with some of the major players and you had this idea of the soul of one of the characters mothers was this cardinal that i just threw in as a random thing i'm like titania has a cardinal on her shoulder and ian was like wouldn't it be interesting if that was the soul of this character's mother? And I'm like, yeah, wouldn't it be? And then it's like once they, uh, the party managed to negotiate the release of uh, this soul, Ian's like, wouldn't it be interesting if the Cardinal just hopped into Titania's hand and she crushed it and then opened it and it w- got transformed into like this, this little, uh, this little baggie that has the soul inside of it. And I'm like, yeah, wouldn't that be interesting? So, you know. I do find that there are some personalities that gravitate more towards soft or hard world building. And especially if you let your characters in on the world building, you end up with a total product that's better than if you try to hoard the creation process to yourself. All right. So we've talked a lot about hard and soft world building, suspension of disbelief, immersion. So rather than looking at examples outside of TTRPGs or outside of our direct experience. Ian, we started this episode by mentioning that you've been doing a lot of world building for Corsara, which is your custom setting for our home campaign. So when it comes to creating your custom world, where do you start? So everyone has their preferences. And a lot of the time, people tend to recommend starting with a village or something like that. And, you know, I can get why they do that. You know, it's a t- it's a tried and true method. You know, people have found a lot of success with that, especially when you consider the roots of the game, you know, being a dungeon crawler kind of thing. Um, you know, you want to start with a village and you want to start with like uh, ruins or a temple that's been destroyed or some sort of dungeon, right? But uh, I think that the medium in which uh, we use to play uh, has a significant role as to what works best at the table and world building in general. So like like we were talking about, you know, doing your world building at the table, like presenting your game at the table, you might lean more towards like mysterious answers and stuff like that. But when you're writing, you know, as a creative writer, I can actually think more on my feet and feel successful uh, in what I present to my players. So what it starts with for me in in terms of Corsara is I started actually with a map uh, and I drew the continent of Corsara, which is on the, the planet, I guess, of Marin, the sphere of Marin. Um, and I drew that continent and I divided it up into countries and I gave them names. So I'm starting them, starting my world building from a macro level. Uh, I'm not starting with just one village and, and that kind of stuff because I've done that before. Basically, uh, I've, I ran a prequel to curse of Strahd where we started in a certain village. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, I think it was Barovia or something. Um, but you know, I was forced to come up with new information that was outside of the the existing content of the module for that village because it was a prequel. I knew I wanted to run Curse of Strahd, but I didn't feel comfortable with the module itself yet. So I decided to create something of, uh, with the same skeleton as Curse of Strahd, but different. And so, uh, you know, basically I had the village already there made for me and I got to experience what it was like being a GM 
for just that localized area for a while. And over time, I started, you know, thinking about questions like, you know, how does this village interact with other villages? You know, is is the valley like a single nation or, or is each village like its own like little isolated space uh, from each other that they just trade between? And so when I started creating Corsara, I decided to start there. Uh, I felt like the best thing I could do was come up with the macro relations first. So what does each re uh, each nation have and what does each nation need? And this gives motive for trade between them. Uh, and I made a capital, a capital city in each of them. And I gave, I started, you know, basically doing a trickle down approach to uh, history, culture and folklore. Again, I don't think it's the best way to start if you're a new GM creating your own custom world. But at the same time, I don't think new GMs should be creating their own custom world yet. Uh, I think they should start with a module because you you need to know what you're getting into. Uh, what kind of game are you going to be playing? What is the dynamic like at your table? Is the medium going to be at a physical table or is it online? And how is that impacting the communication with your players? There's a lot of things to think about as a new GM. And you don't want to bog yourself down creatively with your own like whole freaking mortal plane and cosmos and things like that. Just start with something simple, right? That's why build a village is the first thing you do uh, when you're a new GM. But because I have the experience to rely on and I have seen what happens when I change things from the module and how it fits in, uh, I can start tweaking things until it becomes something completely unique, which is what Corsara ended up being. Well, to comment on the whole process of world building that you know, you just made me think of, I think there's this assumption in the TTRPG community that a lot of GMs hold, which is the way I world build is I'm supposed to think and create something and then show it to my players and then my players play with it. Whereas what you were mentioning, starting with a module, but then having your players ask questions and then you answer those questions I find that to be a much more compelling way to build the world one step at a time, as opposed to trying to create the whole thing and then present it. So I think, you know, it's it's where does the building actually happen? And I think for a lot of GMs, they think they are not doing it right, quote unquote, if they're not building the world first and then showing it. Whereas to me, world building is you're building out the world one episode at a time, kind of like a TV series. You don't have the whole world known going in. Each episode is uh, an opportunity to build the world one little piece at a time. And I completely agree with that. Uh, and uh, we have to acknowledge that, you know, the characters and the, the audience, which is the players, are separate entities. So when you start asking the player, I mean, we talked about this earlier, but when you start asking the player, like, you know, what are you going to do in this situation? And it's, and it's like, well, I have actually no context uh, to, to what what I should do in this situation. Like, am I going to make somebody mad with my decisions? Am I going to offend somebody or uh, or am I going to be supported in my decision? Is this against the law? So like the reason that I started with the macro stuff because was because I found that there were certain questions that my players were asking me uh, in my other games 
that I didn't have my custom world in. And I didn't have the answer because I didn't read the whole module yet <laughs> or I didn't familiarize myself with the world. So I felt like by doing the trickle down approach, I could start saying, OK, here are some basic answers that I can go to when my players ask this question. And that's why I have a player setting guide and that's why I have a reference doc separate from that guide. So it's it's true. You you know, if you're starting your sessions you introduce the world one step at a time that you have prepared to your players. You don't do it all at once. And uh, they help you build it like we were talking about before with their own imaginations. And that's great. That's awesome. And uh, if you are the kind of person that is looking to build an overarching story uh, and you aren't even sure what kind of story you want to tell yet, Building, you know, going in and doing some like background work basically uh, will can help you come to that conclusion about what kind of arching overarching story you're going to have. For example, we don't really know uh, in in the Corsara campaign. We don't really know what the overarching story is yet because we've only had like five sessions and there's two groups. So it's really only two sessions uh, for each group. Um, we have an idea of our characters and stuff, and that's awesome. And there's great social interaction, but there's no like big bad that we know about yet that has been that has been alluded to in any other term besides her capital H. And that's all we know so far. But I would but even getting to that point, I wouldn't have known what I want that to really be without making this macro uh, trickle down uh, approach to my world work. And that's why I spent so much time, you know, in the reference docket as a, at all. So it, it's kind of like a both and, I think. You're absolutely right. I think a big part of this is understanding the scope of the story that you're telling too. So if you were to ask me, I'm a new GM, where do I start? And I had to give you the baby steps, kind of like from Borrowing Brilliance. It's start with a one shot. And as part of that one shot, does world building really matter? Maybe, maybe not. But the the idea is that the scope is small enough that it should fit within a single session. So you might only have one setting for it. And by setting, I mean like one scene, which is your party goes to the dungeon and the dungeon is the world that you'll be building out. But there's nothing past that dungeon because there doesn't need to be because it's just the story takes place in one place. Now, if you look at something like the the different modules for 5th edition, there are various scopes for different kinds of stories that you can run. So Dragon Heist takes place in the city of Waterdeep. You don't really need to build the world farther out than Waterdeep. You can reference some things, but they don't ultimately matter because it's not what the players are interacting with. Um, something like Curse of Strahd, it's a region. So there are four, arguably four, <laughs> like settlements that your players can travel between and there's some wilderness in between them. But the nice thing about Curse of Strahd is it is intentionally a closed off area. And if you wander out of the area, you just like loop back into it. And then you get something like Tomb of Annihilation. It's uh, an island. There is, again, there's ocean all around the island, but it's a pretty big island and there's a lot of points of interest. And then you get something like Tyranny of Dragons. It's potentially a whole continent where you're going from city to city and organizing different factions and doing diplomacy. So 
for Corsara and, you know, for Gearis, what's cool is that it's more the continent model where you've got like this really large sandbox that you get to play in. And if you prepare enough ahead of time, you can either zoom in and just really dive into a particular setting or you can kind of hop a little bit between different uh, settings and have your players consistently travel in between. So I think that I would recommend, you know, you kind of alluded to it with the whole start with a village thing. If you're newer to world building, start by building out the world in a small scope. And as you get more comfortable doing that, now you can start to branch out a little bit. But once you've had enough experience, it does change where you're starting from. So you can start a little bit more macro and present it to your players in a generalized digestible way and see which parts they fall in love with. Throughout this discussion, we've talked about a few different elements of world building. For for you, Ian, you've already mentioned some, but when you go about creating a custom world, what are some preferences that you have? So Ian, do you have any any final thoughts to wrap up our world building conversation? For anybody who's looking to get into world building, you know, I want to recommend the uh, seven baby steps to game mastering uh, episode that we did on Dragon Mind, which I think was with Stephanie. That was that was pretty awesome, and I think that is a really good approach to game mastering in the in the uh, you know first sense. Um, but when it comes to world building, you can follow similar approaches. You start with like a module. You start with uh, like a village, you know, and then you expand upon that, just like we were talking about before. If you're looking for more advanced world building, I challenge you to see what happens when you start with a world on a macro level rather than a micro level. Not necessarily because it's better or worse, just see what happens, you know? Like I, I it worked for me in the end because I became invested in it, but it might not work for you. And I think that one of the biggest takeaways, which we've actually talked about, I think, in depth in a previous episode of Dragon Mind, or maybe it was DM Shower Thoughts, is the soft and hard world building uh, exercise. What of, you know, what kind of things do you, are you going to include in your world that are soft world building uh, experiences, things that don't really have an explanation or uh, exposition uh, that your NPCs can provide? And what things are hard world building examples? Uh, and maybe come up with a list of both and figure out how they interact. That's that's probably what I would do. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium RPGs. For more content by us, check out our YouTube channel with the link in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. I think the core of Dungeons & Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a -a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, dungeon master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts.